0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, Ken Kensell of Churchill Asset Management, CEO, founder, president. Uh, This is really a a fascinating story. Ken was there at the beginning of the private credit markets uh, when he was working at Drexel, and he's been at a number of shops, including... Uh, Chase and uh, Carlisle. Really few people in the industry have seen the growth of this from a tiny little niche form of credit to a trillion dollar plus industry that's become a key part of asset allocation and a key part of the management of foundations uh, endowments, other large institutional investments. Uh, I found this conversation really to be absolutely a master class and, and totally fascinating, and I think you will as well, with no further ado, my conversation with Ken Kensell of Churchill Asset Management. Ken Kinsell, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks so much, Barry. Great to be
2: here, and uh, love love the format. Oh well, it's fantastic.
1: Well, thanks so much for coming. I, I I've very much been looking forward to this conversation. Let's start out by digging into your career, which is really quite fascinating. You started Drexel in the M and A group. What was that like? That had to be quite an experience it
2: was a fascinating time and an incredible group of people i will tell you that you know in many respects you know you look at you look at experiences in your career and think about you know how they influence you and and think about you know organizations and and you know the environment you want to work in And drexel was an incredibly exciting place to work young people given tremendous uh responsibility at frankly a very young age in their careers and uh I got the opportunity to work with some really interesting folks who continue today to be involved in in private equity and private credit and see them all the time, and
1: I'm uh, uh, very proud of that time. It was a great time. From that era, any particular deals or uh, events that stand out as, as highlights or really memorable? Well, the, the deal everybody thinks about mm-hmm. in uh, in that era and
2: kind of the defining deal was RJR. The Barbarians you know, at the Gate. Barbarians right. at the Gate, and the financing what what most people don't realize is that that deal had been hanging around as a potential transaction for a long time and a lot of firms had looked at it and it had conversations with the company and you know it it was you know frankly for us you know younger guys and I was you know I was a you know an associate or vp back then I was you know one of the younger uh, folks in the crew it was a bit of a tar baby back mm-hmm. then. In other words, you know, the senior folks would go around and say, okay, we're going to do yet another analysis on RJR. I'm going to look at a buyout and look at the pricing and look at the structure. So, you know, it got to the point where, you know, it was exciting at first as a deal, but I would say over time we were all kind of under our desks when uh, when the assignment partner came around looking for uh, somebody to work on it. So you know it's funny how deals turn out <laughs> to be you know bellwether deals and known across you know across the didn't look the world, like that at the time. But it didn't look that time. at the yeah. time. People were running. People were running away from working on it. So
1: so so you end up at Chase Financial where you stand up their high yield business. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you get to Chase? Sure. And what was it like back then? They weren't the giant player. They,
2: they, they weren't. Today. In fact, that was pre-merger with Manny Hanny and mm-hmm. Chemical and J.P. Morgan and et cetera. Well, you know, it was interesting. You know, when you know, I think all of us were a bit surprised when Drexel left. You know, the corporate landscape, and I and and you know, all of us were out trying to figure out, okay, well, what you know, where do we go? And and what was fascinating about Drexel and the kind of the diaspora, if you will, of of that era was that we we all basically went out looking to take that experience, you know, particularly in high yield and, mm-hmm. and kind of buyouts and financing and, and do it at either banks or, you know, other other investment banks. So I ended up at Chase in the early 90s and they, interestingly enough, had just formed a, a Section 20. They really weren't in the investment banking business. Mm-hmm. And they looked at the the opportunity there and said, gee, we should really have a, a, a you know, a, a high yield business and a financing business. And so, you um, Tom LeBrec and Art Ryan mm-hmm. hired me um, to start their high yield business, and um, it was a great it was a great place to work. Unfortunately, you know they they went through a series of about you know a dozen mergers right. in the period of a, probably you know five I,
1: years. I love the joke about the person who says they they're sitting at their same desk. But like every three months, they get a new set of business <laughs> right. cards, right? And they just keep a stack of all their old ones. First, we were what was it? Dime, Manny, Hanny. Yep. Um, there was just a run of of acquisitions until they're the behemoth. That they, they pretty much are the Mac Daddy in the space today. That, aren't that's they? exactly
2: right. And uh, and back then, you know, it, it was again, it was a, a very interesting place to be because. They had lots of capital, mm-hmm. and they had lots of clients, but historically, they had not been in that business. So we started the high-yield business there in, in the early 90s, um, and uh, frankly, it was going quite well until you know the, the first of what turned out to be many mergers. And then I left there and, and joined uh, a number of my colleagues from Drexel and launched a business that, as it turns out, was pretty much a carbon copy of the business we have today. And it was a... Uh, it was backed by uh, the largest bank in France. It was called Indosuez Capital, mm-hmm. um, and in many respects, it was a lot like Drexel in the sense that super talented people, incredibly um, flexible—you um, know—in terms of giving young people opportunity, et cetera. It was a relatively small group, but we became one of the most active lenders and financing uh, sources and investors to mid size U.S. companies. Um, and had lots of very talented folks that we worked with. So that that kind of led one thing leads to another, and, and that mm. led us to uh, led me to getting back with a lot of my old colleagues from from Drexel, and um, you know built quite an interesting business there for
1: almost ten years. So many questions. So Indo-Suez Capital sounds so exotic, French bank. What was their focus? Why are so, they investing in mid-market U.S. private cap- right. private credit? Seems. Uh,
2: Unusual, right? So the first thing to think about is that when we first met with them, I'll never forget meeting with with the the gentleman who was you know heading up the bank in the United States, and, and they essentially had virtually no significant business in the U.S. They were lending to aircraft, you know, under mm-hmm. aircraft, uh, uh, and and had a couple other very small businesses, but but they aspired to be a much larger player in the financing markets, and we brought them a plan that you know I think was very similar to what, what the banks were doing at the time, which was providing financing to private equity-owned companies. Mm-hmm. Huge area of growth in the economy. P.E. at that point was really just developing in the middle market. You had a lot of the big buyout firms. They were doing the transactions in the 80s, the early 90s. But you know, these, these large firms were spinning off smaller private equity firms, and they were doing mid-sized deals. Right. And so... Financing and actually investing, co-investing in those deals, you know, was a very interesting place to be, and it was a incredibly fast growing area. Um, in some cases, the big banks weren't quite as interested in in financing those deals, so we created basically a, a mid-market lending platform that ultimately spun out some of the most talented and and and. Um, Capable folks, you know, within the private debt world today. So, hmm. lots of folks work there that now run very large you know, alternative asset management firms and credit credit arms of firms. So, it was a very, very interesting place. But we didn't. Not only did the financing for deals, we actually invested alongside those private equity oh, really? firms very as an equity partner, right? Huh. So, the, the theory was that's great that you're providing a loan, but if you can co-invest with them and get the upside of partnering with some of the most successful private equity funds in the United States. You know, a great way to enhance your returns. We we
1: call that legal insider trading. Hey, I know this private company is about to get a giant line of credit, and that's going to help them go to the next level. Let's get an equity piece of it also.
2: Kind of like that. I mean, I I would say that what we we really did is focus on the private equity firms that really had a great track record. Mm -hmm. You know, we knew the principles. We knew that they had done, you know, good deals, acquiring, you know, attractive and, and high-performing businesses. And so, you know, we, we looked to finance those deals, but essentially said to those those private equity firms, look, we, we you know, we, we think you could do a great job. We love your investment strategy. We love the industries you invest in. You know, we'd love to co-invest with you, mm-hmm. not not as a control, but as a minority investor, right? right? So if they were acquiring a business, you know, we would often take a an equity investment as well. Um, and that model proved to be very, very successful. Now, if you think about the time and place that we were operating, it essentially was the precursor to the current private credit world. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, you know really, we were managed and in, and in investing um, you know alongside you know leading private equity funds and managing the bank's capital. We actually started raising third- party money
1: back huh. then as well. Th- that's really interesting. I want to circle back to something you mentioned. About how that middle market formed, if uh, and let's let's put this in the framework of the 1990s, the market, the public markets were doing great. A lot of these companies were becoming very large, and I think the traditional sources of financing were chasing the bigger bigger companies, and right. suddenly, uh, like a void developed underneath. Is that a fair way to describe that? that
2: that's exactly right. In fact. As things subsequently played out, what you saw is that wave of bank consolidation that I mm-hmm. referred to ultimately brought banks. I mentioned Chase, for example, started with their Section 20 when, when we launched their high yield mm-hmm. business. Section 20 being? Is the investment banking affiliate. Gotcha. right? So, in other words, Chase said, wait a minute, we can be an investment bank. We're going to form our own investment banking operation. In their case, it was called Chase Securities. It's now JP Morgan mm-hmm. Securities. part of them. But, but what was happening is that wave of mergers, you know, the elimination of Glass-Steagall right. and the ability of banks to consolidate and form their own investment banking and their own securities businesses led banks to what effectively was a higher margin business, right? right? R- rather than, you know, put all their capital in a single loan and hold two, three, four, five hundred million dollars of a loan, they could actually arrange to distribute the loan. And so what we saw over that period of time was that banks became much more in the moving business if you will uh-huh. as opposed to being in the storage business that makes right. a lot of sense right sure. so so you know wh- where did that void get filled it got filled ultimately initially by you know some of these more esoteric businesses like indosys capital and of course ge capital had a lending business very mm-hmm. similar but over time it ultimately got filled by Private capital managers, direct lenders, firms that were raising institutional capital to invest in private companies. So underserved in beginning, really in the nineties. But as that underserved dynamic continued to grow, and as the middle market continued to grow, I mean, interestingly, the U.S. middle market is the third largest economy in the world.
1: That that's an incredible. It's amazing stat, to think about, right? right? That that really is an incredible stat. So so you're building out a middle market private credit bank and along comes Carlisle and says, "Hey, we'd like to absorb you. Tell us a little bit about that yeah. experience."
2: So one stop along the way. Mm-hmm. So in subsequent to the, to that business at Indosuez, um I launched my own firm in 2006. And we and this is now further into that bank consolidation dynamic and we raised about 500 million of private equity. And the thesis was, which per- turned out to be completely true, is that these banks were going to move away from the business of actually lending money to mid-sized companies. Right. It was a huge and growing market. And in fact, asset managers were going to become the giants of that business, including firms like Carlyle and mm-hmm. KKR and, and, and others. And so to the extent that we could build a best-in-class private credit direct lending platform – there would be buyers of that business because, again, private equity firms always build things to sell them, Mm -hmm. right? And so five years into that that growth of our business, we sold the firm to to Carlisle in 2011. Carlisle was in the process of going public. So if you think about it, their bankers were saying to them, you know, you're great in private equity. You've got a big real estate platform. By the way... You're not really in this private credit business, and that's really going to be a growth area. You should have a platform there. And that's really what was the the genesis for, you know, our...
0: at com.
1: So so let's talk a little bit about um, uh, the history of, of your business. You launch your own firm, and a couple of years later, along comes Carlisle and says, yep. hey, let's talk about integrating what you do into what we do. How, how did that come right. about, and, and what was that like during that period?
2: Yeah, sure, no, it was interesting. Um, of course, we were coming out of the GFC at that point, and, um, wait, wait, I, wait, wait,
1: you launched in 06. I launched in 06 and we so, sold to Carlisle in 2011. So, so let, let's before we jump to Carlisle, then let me ask you private credit, the banks freeze up in 08, Right. How was your business during that period? Was that a target rich environment or what was that like? So, interestingly enough, um, somewhat different
2: from today, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you think back then, we were, we were um, one of only a handful of private credit firms. Uh The amount of liquidity or dry powder in our world was much more limited. The banks were essentially out of the business, right? Mm -hmm. They weren't lending at that point. So while there was a lot of dry powder in private equity, probably back then, $200 or so of of liquidity, the private equity firms really did not have a large amount of private debt to finance their deals. Mm -hmm. There were a handful of us, right? So, you know, we saw some opportunities, but I would say that it's really only been in the last 10 years where you've seen this tremendous growth in pro- growth in private credit. So today, for example, the situation is very different, mm-hmm. right? Yes, there's a lot of liquidity in private equity, but there's also a lot of liquidity in private credit to be able to finance those transactions. So a very different dynamic than we saw back in, in 2007, 2008, 2009. That being said, we stuck to our knitting. We stayed focused on high-quality companies. Our track record and performance through the GFC was very, very good. Mm-hmm. And so when we came out of the GFC, my private, our private equity owners were starting to think, okay, well, how do we monetize this investment we made? And um, fortunately for us, there were a number of large-scale alternative asset managers like Carlisle that were looking to grow in private credit. Carlisle was in the midst of going public at that point. And uh, I'd known David and Bill, uh, the founders, for well over a decade, almost two decades. And so I approached them about the opportunity of potentially having Churchill become the private credit business within the broader Carlisle Group. So you approached them. They didn't come knocking on your door. That's very fascinating. I, I did approach them. And, um, you know, it, it quickly became clear that the fit was very, very good. Um, it was something that gave them a broader Platform in terms of the ability to, to you know to provide private credit, and frankly, it was an area that that all the analysts were saying was going to be an area of tremendous growth. So uh, we did the deal in 2011, and um, I kind of gave up my baby, if you will. <laughs> um, so I went from being a founder and an owner to being more of an employee and, and, a, and a, um, uh, a, a member of the uh, Carlyle, um, and you know for several years. Uh, we you know, we operated as part of their you know, it's really their direct lending uh, platform.
1: So what led to you saying it's time to spin out and be a standalone right. again? So a couple things.
2: you know, one was, I found that once you're a founder and you have a lot more control over your you know your your culture and your people and the environment and and really the growth dynamics in your business, uh, that I missed that. Mm-hmm. You know, I missed, you know to to me, you know, my business, and, and really the business, you know, that that I've done throughout my career, is is really all about the people. You know, you see firms, I mean, capital is a commodity, right? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, it's really about building, developing, and growing your people. And so for me, the ability to go back and really be in control of that dynamic, be the where I was, which was a founder and an owner of my my own firm, was really where my heart was. And so... You know, I went to David and Bill in 2014, and we had kind of served out our three-year <laughs> term there, and uh, there was an opportunity to, um, uh, to do that, and they were incredibly gracious in allowing me to do that. And, um, you know, for me, I also saw the business changing. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what, what I was seeing was that the ability to deliver large amounts of capital, uh-huh. to really operate like a bank. Right you now, we, we saw this transition starting in, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, but at this point you were seeing large-scale institutions allocate significant dollars to private credit, right? And it became a very well-accepted asset class. Why? Because the banks had been leaving. These mid-sized companies needed financing, and now it wasn't a matter of, "Oh, we're going to invest 10 or 20 or 30 million dollars in a private credit deal." It was we're going to be the lead lender in a four hundred million dollar deal, right? And so, what I felt was that there was going to be a tremendous need for significant capital, and so joining a firm that had that was really an asset owner and that could actually invest their own balance sheet alongside third party investors was going to be a key to being able to grow the business. In the case of uh, you know the firm that we ultimately partnered with, interestingly. TIA had just acquired Nuveen. Mm-hmm. So they had not only did they have a balance sheet and were a significant investor in private credit. In fact, TIAA is the second largest investor in private credit in the world. Wow. So we found a good partner. But they also owned an asset management platform, so they had institutional distribution and the ability to raise capital from third parties globally. So, you know what what we saw and, you know, I've, I've formed a relationship back in 2014-15 with Jose Manaya, mm-hmm. who is now the CEO of Nuveen, and actually still sits on our board today. And I could see his vision for where he wanted to grow this business, and it was completely aligned with mine. And so the opportunity to to launch, relaunch, effectively, my firm, with our name, by the way, mm-hmm. which is kind of nice, with my partners, and by the way, all of my partners... Ultimately, joined me. All my founding partners joined me to join uh, as a an affiliate of of Nuveen and TIA committed an initial amount of capital. Back then, it was three hundred million dollars, and mm-hmm. don't lose it. Um, today, we manage uh, over twenty three billion dollars for TIAA and. Take very very seriously our you know obligation to their members, college professors, mm-hmm. university professors, healthcare workers. Over five million of them, you know, all across the U.S. And every time I have one of these conversations, invariably, and Barry, it's probably you too. You know, well, I've got an uncle who's a college professor right. or somebody who's a teacher, and so I'm passionate about education, and so the ability to invest on in behalf of you know millions of college and university professors and teachers is something that means a lot to me. So
1: so this raises a really interesting question. When you began this industry really didn't exist. Private That's right. credit was That's a, right. you know a twinkle in a few people's eyes. Yes. And now we've watched it grow and become institutionalized and you go from Carlyle to to Nuveen and TIAA what does the state of private credit look like today, and how different is it from what we saw in the 2000s, the 90s, even the early days in the 80s?
2: Well, the the, the first answer is it's very different uh, in 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 a number of ways, but I think fundamentally better. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. So, if you went back to you know kind of the the the, the bank era, right, when banks were doing these mid market loans, what what you'd see is that whether it's Chase Manhattan or Chemical Bank or JP Morgan or uh, whoever what you would see is these banks would make a loan and they would hold virtually all that loan on their balance sheet so you would see pretty high concentrations of you know 100 200 million 300 million all essentially sitting on a single balance sheet of the bank so obviously risk managers you know and you know and CROs were very focused on how do we manage that risk and diversify that that credit risk that they were taking on in, in mid-market companies. What, what's fascinating about the model today and really coming out of the GFC is if you look at the best private credit managers today, mm-hmm. the first thing you see is that we compete for capital based on performance, right? So we attract investors based on delivering solid risk-adjusted returns as opposed to banks that are basically looking to make loans to drive short-term earnings. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the transition away from banks has helped diversify the the investments in private credits. What do we mean by that? If you look at our funds today, we manage about $46 billion in capital at at Churchill today, and we'll talk about the acquisition uh, that Naveen did of Arcmont um, in a few minutes. But at Churchill, the historical business, we manage that capital on behalf of over 1,500 investors globally so when you think about the individual exposure to a a specific name in our funds it represents less than one-half of 1% of the portfolio so those investors are getting an incredibly diversified Uh and I would argue lower risk profile than if for example one bank makes a 400 million dollar loan and holds the whole thing on their balance sheet right so so in that sense it's very performance driven It's meaning the best managers attract capital, uh, which was not the case in the banking world. Two, the, the investments are held over a broad range of institutional investors and highly diversified because of the nature of how we fund our loans. They're not held by one fund. In our case, they're held by separately managed accounts, commingled funds, publicly registered vehicles, et cetera. So... Healthier in the sense that the risk is more diversified, and then thirdly, I would say, in the case of of of, of our business, we have a number of, of real advantages over you know over our competitors and over banks that give us, I think, a better an ability to deliver better outcomes for our investors, including the fact that TIAA, as our largest investor, invests directly alongside every investor in our you know in our in our um, in our in our firm
1: and and i want to put a little meat on the bones when you were talking about the growth of the space private debt aum has grown to 1.3 trillion dollars that's a 5x increase since the financial crisis and a doubling since 2015 that's right. so so this is not like a little niche anymore this is a trillion dollar space a- absolutely
2: and You know, it's funny when I you know, when I was on the road (laughs) in the early days, you know, talk about, you know, even even post GFC, you'd meet with large scale institutions and you'd talk about senior secured loans, private lending, covenants, reasonable leverage, et cetera, et cetera. And they would look at you and say, Well, that's all fantastic and sounds really interesting and the risk adjusted returns look really good, but we don't really know where to put it. Right? Uh In other words, it's not private equity. And it's not traditional fixed income, you know, like investment-grade right. fixed income. And so it sat in this kind of middle ground. And, you know, it took a while before larger institutions really accepted that this could be a very attractive place to earn very good risk-adjusted returns. And early days, it was, you know, probably 10%, maybe, maybe 20% of investors that we would meet with that would really be allocating. To mm-hmm. to private credit. Today, ninety percent of the investors we meet with have not only allocated to private credit, but they they have a plan to increase their allocation to to private credit. So what, what I've been able to you know have a kind of a front row seat to during my career was this tremendous transition mm-hmm. from the mid market lending business being really a bank led business. And then kind of had an interim stop at GE Capital, where it was more of right. kind of a finance company, if you will. And then really accelerating over the last, you know, 15, 20 years of being really an asset management business, in some respects, no different than private equity, right? And in fact, some private equity firms have private credit arms that manage credit as well as equity.
1: And, and you mentioned the acquisition of Arcman Asset Management by Nuveen, Tell us about the thinking behind that. Does that get integrated to Churchill or is that a co investor? How does that work yeah, out? Yeah, sure.
2: So, you know, we, you know, over the course of our time, you know, it, as part of, of Naveen, um, it's been a fantastic partnership. Um, we've had great support from first Roger Ferguson, the former CEO, and now Tasunda Brown Ducket, who's current CEO of TIAA and, and the CIO uh, CEO, and then also the CIO as well. But what we saw was that. We were really not truly a global private credit manager. We were 100% focused on managing investments in the U.S. Um, uh, About three or four years into our business, TIA TIA actually moved all of the management of their private equity uh, fund commitments, all of the management of their private equity co-investments. And so we went from being just a private debt investor to being a private capital investor Mm -hmm. and so that was a big event for us because all of those private equity relationships as a limited partner are fantastic drivers of knowledge and relationships and deal flow to finance those deals with Mm -hmm. those private equity firms so today we manage over 270 private equity fund commitments and co-invest alongside those investors interestingly enough that business our business today Mm -hmm. is virtually identical to the business, but much bigger than the business we had at Indo-Suez over 20 years ago. Huh. Meaning you're doing lending, you're co-investing in the equity. But what we didn't have, when we really stepped back and looked at it, we didn't have Europe. right? We didn't have an ability to do what we do in the context of a European market that was, in many respects, developing very rapidly uh, and, and probably five years behind the U.S. Does ArcMont solve that problem for you? They do. And in fact, when we started looking at potential partners, and I mean partners in a very real sense, we looked at pretty much all the direct lenders in Europe. And what we saw in Arkmont was, in many respects, the carbon copy of us uh-huh. in the United States. Entrepreneurial, had been part of a big firm at one point, had spun out from that firm, were very much focused on high-quality conservative credits, you know, primarily private equity financed and owned businesses. So, you know, a a mirror image in many respects of what we were doing in the U.S. middle market, they were doing in the the mid and upper middle market in Europe. And because Europe has been roughly five to ten years behind the U.S. in terms of that bank transition that I described, it was an ability to participate in essentially the same transition that's been going on, the consolidation. Of course, we just saw another consolidation with <laughs> Credit Suisse in, into UBS. So Europe going through a very similar bank you know, uh, retrenchment as it relates to direct lending. Arcmont, one of the early adopters in Europe, they actually launched their firm back in 2010, 2011. So we, wanted, we saw an opportunity to really partner with a leader in the same business as us. And so what we did really is take... Churchill, which today is a top three lender in the U.S. middle market, we do over $11 billion of investment per year in over almost 400 companies, and we saw with ArcMont an ability to essentially take that model and partner with a very same market-leading business in Europe, and we formed a holding company called Nuveen Private Capital that basically is a $67 billion parent company that myself and the CEO of ArcMont co-head. And so we've taken huh. a market-leading business in the U.S., a market-leading business in Europe, and now collectively we now have a global private credit manager that can provide financing to cross-border transactions, can deliver a global solution to our investors, right? We have an investor that says, you know, I, I, I like Europe, I like the U.S. Can you give me a U.S.-European global private capital solution. And obviously now we can do that.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at com.
1: Let's talk a little bit about 2022, which for a lot of people in the capital markets was a a difficult and not exactly pleasant year. You guys had a huge year. You invested $11 billion. That's a record. 375 transactions. You raised another $11 billion in capital, despite the economic environment. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what made everything click in 2022. Yeah. Well, I think that you know 2022 in
2: many respects, and I would say COVID in general, certainly mm-hmm. the last three years of COVID, have really been a watershed for our firm. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with investors recognizing that how we invest and the the advantages we have and the ability to deliver attractive risk-adjusted returns because of our scale, our differentiated private equity relationships. And the fact that we've been doing this a long time really all came together in COVID. So mm-hmm. it's not just 2022. I would say it's basically been the past COVID. 3 years yeah the past yeah. 3 years and and what and what it set the stage for was investors really looking carefully at private credit managers and saying gee you know there's been this rush to private credit we need to really look deeper at performance and track record it's all well and good when everything's going up and sure. the market environment's good and you know credit's flowing but when things get more difficult and certainly they did for everyone during covid how do they manage to grow the business, and how is their portfolio performing in a in a you know in a essentially a you know an economy that was basically frozen? And I think that what our investors saw is that number one, our portfolio held up incredibly well. Mm-hmm. We we actually did not have a full scale default during COVID. We, That's you know, impressive. Which is pretty interesting, right? When you yeah. think about now, why is that? Well, we financed high-quality businesses. We don't invest in oil and gas and restaurants and retail and more volatile businesses. We stay away right. from all that, right? So we focus on quality. We focus on market leaders. We we partner with private equity firms that themselves have a great track record that focus on the kind of industries where we do invest, which is technology and healthcare and business services and market leaders in those areas, distribution, logistics. So we go through covid we perform extremely well. The portfolio does well. And investors take note of that. And TIA takes note of that as our largest investor. And so their allocations and investors' interest in us as a private credit manager grow exponentially. And so you see our capital raising. You mentioned $11 billion last year. It was about $12 billion a year before that and a significant number prior to that. So during COVID, we've, we have raised well over billion from TIA and other investors. And so performance, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what I said earlier about, you know, performance attracts capital, right? So the lesser performers, I think, struggled during COVID. And I'd say 2022 is the culmination of that, because not only did you have COVID, but now you've got rising interest rates. And so if you're financing marginal businesses, suddenly the cost of their loan, the good news is our interest rate goes up with rising. All of our
1: loans are floating rate. Oh, so really? Because I was going to... No, so no, me, good news for us. So let me jump in and ask this. So prior to 2022, we're effectively at zero. That's right. So how does the increase... My, my loans were yielding 6 to 7%. And then what happens when rates go up to 4 so 45 Our loans
2: today are yielding 11 to 12%. So the very same loan that we did a year ago at 6 mm-hmm. to 7%, is now yielding for our investors 11 to 12%. So and is
1: it LIBOR plus five, what, what, whatever that's right. the substitute that's for exactly LIBOR right. is That's
2: exactly right. So t- that's right. F- SOFR, right? Mm-hmm. So what we saw was that not only did underlying base rates go up about 450 basis points, mm-hmm. maybe more today, right? Right? Spreads widened. And so that very same loan, a 6 to 7% loan, today is is yielding and our portfolio reflects that our yield now is you know eleven percent plus. So better returns for our investors. Mm-hmm. Now conversely, you gotta look at the companies and say, can they handle, you know, eleven percent interest, right? Well, because we were a very conservative lender and because we were going into transactions with very reasonable leverage, in fact our average equity in our transactions has been running about 55, 60 percent equity. Mm-hmm. Right? So well capitalized conservative structures, covenants. And so the rise in rates has been beneficial to our investors, but it has not caused broad-based issues in our portfolio. So we're sitting in a great place. Track record, performance, portfolio doing well, lots of liquidity, we continue to raise capital, and investors, institutions see that, and as a result, gravitate toward the better quality manager. So today, our yields on our funds are you know, at the highest levels they've ever been in our history. Our portfolio remains in very solid shape. We have a very, very small number of names, even, you know, in our kind of watch list category. And we're seeing, interestingly enough, and this is, I think, a bit a bit of a surprise, that the more challenged businesses are actually not coming to market today, right? If you've got a company and they're struggling under their interest burden or they're struggling as a result of, Inability to pass on price increases, or mm-hmm. problems with dealing with the rise in rates, or the consumer—they're probably not going to be businesses that are being sold today. So the businesses that we are seeing and are coming to market are higher quality, you know. And and so overall, you know, I would argue that that the current environment for us is really a, a golden age for our ability to to lend to higher biz- quality businesses by the way with lower leverage right because mm-hmm. you can't lever it you can't lend at six times leverage today when <laughs> rates are 11% versus 6 right? right so now leverage is lower covenants are more in favor of lenders like ourselves and i think frankly what we're seeing play out today in the banking industry will only enhance that dynamic
1: so, so let's talk a little bit about the types of businesses you're lending to. You said no restaurants, no retail, no oil and gas. So anything right. that's either um, very volatile or very specific. Like a good restaurant is a great business, but as an industry, it's a razor-thin margin, difficult business with high turnover. What sort of businesses do you like? Where do you focus? Sure. So, so we like market-leading businesses, so we like
2: businesses that are in their niche a you know one or two player in mm-hmm. terms of their business we like businesses that are really what i would call traditional side middle market companies so what does that really mean you know we we don't like the micro companies right companies with you know 3-4 million dollars a year in cash flow frankly we saw in the gfc those businesses were much more heavily impacted mm-hmm. right so we want businesses that are typically you know 50 million to 100 million in cash flow, maybe as small as 25 million, but but significant companies, market leaders in industries, and with demonstrated track records of strong historical growth. So what do we mean by that? Mm-hmm. So software is a service business, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, a, a business that provides software to banks or to manufacturing companies, where the software is actually embedded in the business, right? Highly unlikely to switch providers. Subscription model. Subscription model, correct. By the way, not revenue-based, cash flow-based. In other Mm -hmm. words, we're not lending to kind of pie-in-the-sky venture capital businesses. We're financing real companies that are the lifeblood of the U.S. economy. Healthcare. We're a major financing provider to healthcare businesses, Mm -hmm. right? We financed, as an example, um, uh, orthopedic uh, practice uh, buildup, a a large-scale practice that... Um, is providing healthcare services to, um, you know, individuals and is a leading practice in the in the New York area. Uh, we finance that business. We financed us. Uh, so you mentioned software, um, a firm called Diligent. We have been a financing partner of them for years. So, you know, they they are used to keep uh, information secure for boards and endowments and other, you know, um, uh, uh, public and private investment boards. Um, optical scanning. Um, secure information, ability to update on a regular basis. You have a board meeting and you want to update the materials five minutes before the meeting. You downloaded that into their site, and so they are the leader in that space. So market leaders, recurring revenue, recurring cash flow, information services, software, healthcare, distribution, logistics, business services, but away from businesses that are very volatile, right? Because volatility brings all sorts of challenges, liquidity issues, issues with respect to, you know, wiping out underlying equity value or businesses that, frankly, we could be completely right on the credit, but wrong on the commodity, right? right? Oil goes up, oil and gas businesses do well, it goes down, it takes everybody down. Right. So we like businesses where we can do our homework, we can finance strong management teams backed by leading private equity firms, and that's where we've been for our history. So so let's
1: talk about those um management teams. Once you make either a, a credit or an equity or both investment into a company, how closely do you stay involved with the management team once the deal, you know, once the ink is dried? Do you stay involved, or is it arm's length at that point? Very, very involved. And
2: and and I think that is, that is in many respects, a byproduct of the private equity business today, which has changed dramatically. So, you know, when you think about, Barry, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you know, private equity firms were buying businesses, putting up 10% equity, you know, buying companies for, you know, six, seven, eight times cash flow, and really looking to cut costs and 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 and, um, and and flip those businesses a few years later. That's not the business today. What we see in private equity today is really private investment firms buying and growing businesses, mm. creating value through growth, through acquiring smaller players. I look at a company like Diligent. When we first financed that business, it was doing twenty million a year in cash flow. It's doing you know two hundred plus million in cash wow. flow today. So the model today is a growth model. And with that growth comes a much closer relationship with the lender. So in most of our deals today, the private equity firm that's buying the business is already talking to us about the next acquisition, the next opportunity, the next geographic expansion. So what they're bringing to the table really is equity and looking for us to be a a full-scale partner of theirs providing that financing. And so The the model, if you will, isn't just oh we lend money to these guys and we walk away and we hope they don't breach a covenant. The model today is no 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 no. We're buying off on the strategy of growth. How can we be a you know an important and very strategic partner of that private investment firm as they grow the business? And I'll give you an example. At the time of our financing, our average company is about forty to fifty million in cash flow. Mm -hmm. Yet our portfolio today. You know, obviously several years on from when we financed the original deal, our portfolio today is approaching $70 million in average cash flow of of a business. So, so there's significant been some nice growth though. growth in the underlying portfolio companies because those private equity firms see their role as really driving that growth. And our role, obviously, is to be a good
1: partner for them. So, so on the one end of the spectrum, a bank makes a loan, and they hope it doesn't default. On the other end of the spectrum private equity companies accumulate a a, a portfolio of separate companies that they're running, they have thousands of employees, you seem to straddle uh, the two of them. You Mm -hmm. have a foot in each camp. You're making loans, you're providing equity investments, but you're not accumulating portfolio companies the way PE farms do.
2: Well, interestingly, so here's the angle and the difference between us and virtually any of our peers. If you look at most of our peers in private credit, certainly the large ones, they all have their own dedicated private equity arms, right? So if you look at the publicly traded asset managers, they have private credit, but then they also have a control private equity arm that actually mm-hmm. does deals, right? So in some respects, you could argue competing against themselves a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're 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 buying companies. But then they're financing, in large part, private equity firms that are competing to buy those very same companies, right? Not always, but occasionally. In our case, we don't have a controlled private equity business, Mm -hmm. right? Our private equity business is partner-oriented. And it starts with the fact that we have investments in over 270 mid-market private equity funds, Mm -hmm. right? So what does that do for us? It gives us tremendous insight into their performance, right? And so we do all that research. We understand their focus. We obviously see what industries they invest in. We, understand, we see their IRRs, their returns they generate. We invest with the best, and then we look to do other things with them, mm-hmm. right? So we're a limited partner. We may co-invest in the equity in some of those deals, but but equally as important we now understand the firm. We have an ongoing relationship. We sit on the advisory board today of 200 U.S. private equity firms so, on their so advisory board.
1: Let, let's drill into that a little bit. When you say you're a limited partner, I think of LPs as, oh, here's a Carlisle Fund 27. Right. I give you X dollars. I'm an LP. That What you're describing sounds like a much tighter relationship where— you're co-investing in a specific project, That's right. not just handing off dollars to a fund. That's
2: exactly right. We have a separate team that does that, right? So mm-hmm. they are managing our investments in private equity firms and co-investing in those deals. And part of their goal is to assist the lending side in understanding who's doing it the best. What industries are they doing it? and ultimately making sure that we're connected on the lending side with how we can finance their deal. I
1: was about to say, that sounds like it's really good for deal flow. It's really good for deal (laughs) flow. And in fact,
2: what we're seeing in the current environment is that those 270 private equity funds where we're a limited partner and sit on their advisory boards are increasingly consolidating their lending relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're saying, you know what? We wanna go to partners that when we bring a deal to them, we know they're gonna be there, right? And if you've financed 20, 30, 40, 50 deals with that firm over the past 20 years as we have, we've become, in many respects, the go-to partner of many, many of these private equity firms now. And it's a huge advantage, right? Because if you think about it, if you're a private equity fund and you're going to try to buy a transaction, you're competing to buy a business, right? Mm -hmm. And you need financing. You need committed financing. Are you going to go to a firm that has done 30 deals with you over the last 20 years and you know is going to be there or are you going to
1: try a new guy, right? You're going to go where you've got a relationship and you've got a history. So so let's talk about that because I have a limited amount of experience with a couple of different firms doing this sort of stuff and and one of the things I found fascinating and I won't mention any names but every, household names that everybody knows and and one of the deals that we did I just came away thinking every interaction with these people has been fantastic everybody at everyone every level is a rock star hey we're looking for a buyer we're looking for a seller everybody comes together with the same objective in mind yes and it happens and i'm like wow that was really a delight to deal with i have to think when you have these long-term relationships it's personal there's a ton of trust it's not Every step along the way, all right, let's bring on the team of lawyers to fight right. over commas. It's, right. we know who you are, you know who right. we are, let's make this happen. Well, if
2: you think about it, if if we've financed 30 deals, as we have with many leading private equity firms, we start out on the five-yard line, right? <laughs> right? In other words, we've right. done 30 documents with them, right? I mean, you know what we don't need like. to recreate the docs, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we've we got personal chemistry and history, we've got a course of dealing where we both know kind of we start with okay we just did your last deal let's let's start with that document right so all of a sudden we're at the 95 yard line right so so a lot ability to move much more quickly third there's a level of trust so when we say to that private investment firm we're good you know we're issuing a commitment letter we're good they know we're good right they know that after 20 years of working with us we're going to be there for them and oh by the way just one other element we're a limited partner in your fund and our private equity team sits on your advisory board and oh by the way we've got a long-term connection with you guys we're you know we're here for the long run. Seems very comfortable for everybody involved. It is. And, and you know what? That doesn't mean that we don't negotiate over terms and we have to and they mm-hmm. do too, but at the end of the day there's a level of respect and trust that we're going to get there. We like the business, it makes sense, and it's been a huge driver for growth in our business. I you know, I would venture to say that there've been very few Direct lending firms like ourselves that in a relatively short period of time, if you think about, it, it's been seven years that we've been part of of, of TIAA. Mm-hmm. It'll be it'll be eight years actually. Our anniversary is coming up here. If you think about how you know how we have grown this business, you know, last year we were the second most active direct lender in the United States. That's a relatively short time when you look at every you know look at the firms that are around us. Many of them have been around for you know as many as fifteen or even twenty years. So, mm-hmm. so in that sense, we've grown the business quite significantly. And and I'd be remiss if I didn't. I just got asked this question last week, so I you know sure. I think this is important. Let's hear. So I was actually on uh, speaking at a conference, the Greenwich Economic Forum last week, where your folks interviewed me actually. Mm-hmm. So I had a very nice conversation. But I was asked the question: How does that happen? How do you go from million from TIAA. They were our only investor. We had one investor eight years ago. We have nearly 2,000 investors today, including many, many of the largest U.S. pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and international investors. And and I said three things. I said, number one, it's all about your people. And it's particularly all about the first 10 to 20 people you hire. Mm -hmm. If they are the right people... And obviously technical capability, but also just culturally are the right people. For sure. They multiply like crazy,
1: right? those are the people who are going to be running be running and hiring. Their, right? And they're right. going to
2: be hiring people. So next thing you go, you, you know, you go from <clears throat> 10 to 15, 20 people. Suddenly you've got 50 people. Right. We were at 50 professionals when we went into COVID. We're 150 today. Wow. We were managing $6 billion when we hit covid we're managing $46 billion That's a today. a big,
1: big step up. People.
2: So, number one, it's all about the people. And I'm so proud of the team and the culture we've built. I mean, we literally just had our offsite two weeks ago, and, you know, I was practically crying. I couldn't believe what a great team we've put together. But secondly, the partners you have. You know, if you look at TIAA and Naveen, they've been unbelievable partners. Naveen's raising money for us. is mm-hmm. investing their own capital, and obviously their 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 members' capital They've been incredible, unwavering supporters. As I've mentioned, we managed $23 billion today for, for TIA and their right. participants. But also, Nuveen has helped raise capital, and we wouldn't be here without them. And then, and, and Jose, obviously, as the CEO, has really been an incredible supporter. And then I would say, it, it's at the end of the day, It's also about recognizing that this is never easy. I mean, you know this, Barry, right? It looks so easy now, right? I tell other people stories, you know, like, oh, it looks so easy. Tom Brady, It was inevitable, It was inevitable. I mean, Tom Brady was drafted in the fifth round, and, you know, he was sitting on the bench in New England, and how does this happen, you know? And I tell my kids this all the time. You have to be willing to pay the price in tenacity and a willingness to just keep... You know, if I told you how many times, not just me, but... All of us who are really leaders in this space get ter- got turned down raising money. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, thank you very much. Come back later. No, thank you very much. Interesting. Come see us a year from now. So it's a willingness to be incredibly tenacious and really not give up. You know, and and you know, I know that sounds kind of cliche like, but, but it's cliched for a reason. But it's, it's you know it's what the truth. It's really the truth. And you know, on the people front, we've been very focused on on on. really building a diversified, diversity, diverse workforce. So today, you know, nearly half our people are women or or ethnic minorities because it's good business. Mm -hmm. You want diversity of thought. You want diversity of backgrounds. You want diversity of ideas, right? I need somebody around to tell me when I'm being a knucklehead, right? (laughs) And sometimes, you know, you can make wrong decisions, but it's it's a lot harder to make a bad decision and there's a lot more of a defense mechanism if you surround yourself with people who have diverse ideas and diversity of thought and can say to you, you know what, I've actually been in that situation, this is probably not the right, right decision. So listening, building a very diverse team, listening to them, and, 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 and ultimately being willing to change your mind when sometimes you don't have all the answers and you need to, you know, you need to rely on folks that, you know, can really bring value. Huh. And so I, I'm, I'm very humbled by that. And it's been a great run.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
1: So let's talk about the experience you've had in the industry working with lots and lots of different companies, some not so successful, some incredibly successful. When you look at the landscape out there, what's the difference between the rock star firms that are killing it, and the also runs who just seem to be bogged down in bureaucracy and can't get out of their own way.
2: Yeah, no, and I think it's a it's a great question, and and you know obviously I've had a front row seat to lots of different institutions and and certainly my own as well, and I think in the final analysis, you know I mentioned people, but it, but it's even it, even more than that in a very important way. It, it's ultimately about leadership, right? If if the leadership of an organization empowers their people, puts their people in a position to succeed, and and understands that at the end of the day, you know, their job is not to micromanage people, their job is to set their people free and make sure that they're, you know, in a word, kind of bulldozing all the barriers away. Right. right? That that's my job at the end of the day. And you approach it with a sense of humility and certainly a lot of passion, but at the end of the day, having as I mentioned earlier, having hired what I view are the best team in the industry, you now have to empower the best team in the industry, and you have to mentor the best team in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I look across the organization, it's all about, at the end of the day, providing that leadership and support. And so the best organizations, and I certainly try to to do my best to to, to emulate this, are really all about leadership that is in many respects, a servant leader. And that's what I believe. Servant leader. Servant leader. I believe my job is to serve my people and to make sure that they are able to do their absolute best at their job, not to create barriers or not to micromanage them, but to empower them and to knock those barriers down and to put
1: them in a position where they can be successful. You... You are not the first CEO who has said that to me I, I've heard similar things from other folks and these are all very successful companies so I assume there's something to that well
2: you know it, it in many respects it gets it gets back to you know my background which is quite unique mm-hmm. and I think um, so let's talk about that what makes your background so so unique well it's probably the most unique background of, of, of any, anyone you've, you've interviewed in a while. Um, um,
1: there's one other okay. person who has a similar background, <laughs> right.
2: but right. tell us. Yeah. So I, I was born in Buffalo, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was left for ultimately for adoption when I, when I was born, but I was basically left at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, by the way unclear whether i was actually going to make it so i was put on oh uh, i was put in life support in an incubator and lots of other stuff but anyway long story short i did obviously i'm here um but i was adopted um by a couple that you know luck would have it both my father and mother died when i was quite young Mm -hmm. and so i my mother um my mother's brother my my uncle raised his hand and said you know I can do this. You know, I'll, I'll step in for my sister because he's an only child. And, you know, um, I grew up in a, a pretty uh, ramshackle part of Buffalo called Woodlawn. Uh-huh. Um, and um, ultimately, my uncle became my guardian. It took him um, well over a year. Uh, he never graduated from high school. He worked in the steel plant. We actually lived across the street uh, from uh, the Bethlehem Steel uh, where he mm-hmm. worked. Um, but he changed everything in my life, and what what he changed is he had a tremendous amount of humility, and you know always taught me growing up that, you know it's not about you, it's about how you can influence and change other people's lives, and so I've always had that focus, and so he sent me to an all boys Jesuit high school called Canisius, the Jesuits kind of got behind the program and sent me to a Jesuit high school, uh, Georgetown University. Uh-huh. Um and, and in my career I've always tried to
1: dedicate myself to making everyone around me better. So let's let's focus on that because you said something earlier that I let slip by but I want to address, especially given the the growth the firm has seen over the past couple of years. You mentioned the first ten or twenty hires you make are the most important hires. Tell us why. What happens to those first 20 people as the firm grows to 100, 150 employees.
2: It's very interesting, you know, and I, and I interviewed all of them, every mm-hmm. single one of them. One of them's here in the studio with us today, and Jessica Tannenbaum, who heads up our, our, um, our marketing area in, in, in communications. And, and at the end of the day, you, you see something and you know it when you see it. It's, it's a level of passion and enthusiasm. Obviously, all of the boxes are checked, right? Experience, mm-hmm. background, knowledge, understanding of the job, et cetera. But there's something else. And I would say that something else is in, in a, an outward facing dynamic where they are clearly, incredibly passionate about what they do, but also that enthusiasm and passion is inf- infectious. And, and they recruit people just like them. And suddenly, you know, you instead of, you know, you have a core group that may be ten, fifteen, twenty people. You know, and I am sure this is probably similar with other firms like this. I mean, if you look at, you know, Bloomberg, I'm sure it was, you know, Mike and three guys in a conference room when they got started, right? But it was the right three or the right ten, right? And you look at, you know, you look at firms, you know, in the asset management industry, and the similar the story is in many respects very similar. So, you know, you you want you want individuals that are um Outwardly focused, focusing on building a team of incredibly talented people, and understand that it's really important to act as a mentor and a coach, and and ultimately a cheerleader and a provider of um, you know uh, opportunity to to really grow in their career and their um in, in their in their jobs. And what's fascinating about us is we've had virtually no turnover over the last several years, mm-hmm. uh, all through COVID. And I think that, you know, that's a mark of an organization that has tremendous stability. Um, And, you know, I walk around all the time and I'm talking to everyone, you know, literally, I think my people get sick of me walking around because I'm (laughs) literally walking around. But I think it's really important to let them know you care and that, you know, they feel that and then they thrive on that passion.
1: So I've, I've had a number of CEOs, I've either had them tell me this on the show or I've read it elsewhere that have all said... Hiring is not only the most important part of our job; it's the single most difficult thing we do. Yes. Do you do you agree with that? One hundred percent. What makes it so challenging, and and how can we do it well or or better? I, I think that first of all, it is absolutely the most
2: it's the most important part of your job, but it's also the hardest, mm-hmm. right? Because you have a half an hour or forty five minutes. And you're trying to assess whether this person is really gonna fit well in the organization. Sometimes they self select out, by the way, right? right? In other yeah. words, they, in the process, it becomes clear that it's not a good fit. And but that's that, fine. those are
1: the easy those ones. Those are the easy ones, right. okay?
2: The harder ones are where, you know, look, people gear up for an interview, you see one side of a person during mm-hmm. an interview, and sometimes that's not the side you get. Right. And so it's important in a couple ways. One, we typically have an individual that we hire interviewed. By at least a dozen people, sometimes more. Wow! Because we want, you know, we want to get a look at them in all different facets in all different
1: environments. And are you quantifying them? Is there a checklist, or is it very subjective? And I think this person's a good fit or not? I, you know, in many respects, I wouldn't call it subjective, but
2: I would say, you know, we have folks that do lots of interviews, and I mm-hmm. would say there are certain people in our organization to do more than others because they're really good at it, and so we keep going back to them. But I would say that at the end of the day, uh, it's very important not only to get a broad-based consensus around a person, but also to do the background checks. It's mind-blowing to me how many firms hire, and in some cases, very senior people, Mm -hmm. and just think, well, this person's well-known, we're going to hire them. And if they had made one or two phone calls, they would find out pretty quickly that actually that individual is a bit of a disaster in their prior job. So not only do we make this effort with you know relatively junior people, but if we ever and do we do sometimes hire more senior, we actually redouble the effort when we're t- when we're talking about a senior person because one of the things you learn having been doing this for 25 plus years is you can't hide from your reputation. You are, you know, once you've been doing this that long, Right. You know, people know who you are and what you're about, and so we want to make sure that we understand that when we when we make a hire to senior level. But absolutely about the people, absolutely important to vet them. Incredibly hard to do, and and by having lots of folks involved in the process, mm-hmm. particularly ones that are good at it, and spending a lot of time doing follow up and background checks, you get a pretty good picture of that person, and those are the people we want.
1: Re- really, really interesting stuff. Let let me throw you. A curveball question. Okay, You play guitar in a band called Suburban Chaos? (laughs) Come on. First of all, what sort of music do you play, and and how how often are you guys gigging? Yeah,
2: we we gig a lot. Well, first of all, I would just say this. I've been playing guitar since I was six years old, seven years old. And, you know, all of us, you know, if you've been playing guitar that long— all of us guitar players harbor the dream of being a rock star. Uh, uh, right? Rhythm or lead? Are you shredding uh, or what I'm are you doing? I'm a rhythm guitar player and a singer okay. in my band, uh, which I've had now for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it actually came about, interestingly enough, because, um, full credit to my wife, she actually happens to be a competitive ballroom dancer. Okay, So my wife would go off to competitions and you could see the passion she had for really, you know being a great dancer, and she's been a dancer for as long as I've been a guitar player. Right. So I watch her, you know, starting to really get into this ballroom dance thing, and I realized, I better get with my game here. I, I You know, so I need to have something to do, too, while my wife is traveling all over, for, you know, these dance competitions. So, and by the way, she was you know, U.S. ballroom dance champion for uh, many years as well. So she's wow. really good at that. So anyway, so I figured, okay, I've got to gotta have my gig, right? So... We formed a band about 10 years ago, and uh, I like to say that you know our repertoire is, let's say, vintage.
1: Well, you know, I, I, listen, we're not that far apart on age. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so I assume it's vintage, but the question is, is it Credence and John Fogarty? Is it uh, Allman Brothers? Te- what sort of stuff do you play?
2: Right. So I would characterize our music style as yacht rock
1: meets... 70s disco. So, That's an eclectic. so yeah. when I think yacht rock, I think as Eagles, much as I love Eagles Steely Dan, Steely Dan, right? Dan. yeah, yeah, which are really both, you know, spectacular, well written yeah. music, and especially with Steely Dan, not easy to play, right. or at least not easy to play well. Yes, uh, depending on the song, and and on the disco side. Dance music, so Michael Jackson, okay, um, uh, P- Patti LaBelle. So you, know, you could uh, be any bar mitzvah band in the Northeast, exactly. And it's show a, up and get everybody uh, uh, before the Viennese table. It, everybody gets up and can move.
2: Well, look, it's all about entertaining people. It's mm. all about playing music that uplifts them. It's all about playing music they want to dance to, and you know what? You know, you may have seen the same thing. I've certainly seen it. Our vintage music has had a bit of a resurgence, right? Sure. I mean, you know, I hear songs that I listened to when I was a kid, and I'm like, wait a second, that song's 40 years old, you, and you still go to satellite
1: it. music, uh, you go to XM, and a lot of stations that aren't like a decade station, right? But like the blend, it's where is this yeah, stuff coming from? That's the exactly right. The blend. So, and, and then the other thing is when you look at the streaming services new acts aren't breaking into streaming it's all older stuff that has already has an established so so last band question just give me your three favorite cover songs you play and that'll allow me to know exactly who you are yeah okay well it'll show you a cross section of, of okay, what hit we me. do
2: so i would say um we do uh we do a lot of you know, as you say, '70s rock. So, but we also do you know, you know, Sade, So, for example, we play smooth, smooth operator. operator, smooth okay, operator. I knew where you so, going with that? Yeah. Right? So we play smooth operator, which is great. Uh, we we do. Um, You're not doing the vocals to
1: smooth operator, I assume.
2: Uh no, we have a, we have a female uh, lead singer hope, who is right? who is uh, fantastic. Uh, you know, we do. more of a rock song called All Right Now by Free. Of course. That was giant. Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers. Former band company. That was a giant song. Uh, And we do uh, a song that is a little bit less known by a guy named Paul Carrick when he was with a band called Ace called So Long. Excuse me. How Long? How long has this been going oh, sure, on? Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, That again, was a
1: Spencer's Gift soundtrack type of thing. Exactly. Way back when. Exactly.
2: So I don't so think we're the,
1: I think we're almost the same exact
2: yeah, so, age, at least musically. Yeah. So we play, you know, we play all over New York and Connecticut, and we've played as far as Newport, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. But, you know, one thing about a band that's very interesting, uh, Barry, is that unlike a company like ours, where there is clear. You know, you're the boss or she's the right. boss or whoever. It's a different dynamic. Oh, it's a democracy. Uh-huh. And by the way, you know, I have to put all of my CEO, you know, tendencies, you know, it, you know, leave them at the door, right? right? So suddenly, you know, our band is named Suburban Chaos, and in many respects, it can be chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to play their own songs. Everybody wants to do this, and you know, this is first, etc. And you really have to be much more of a, you know... It's a democratic process, let's put it huh. that way, as opposed to uh you know, as opposed to a to a company. But it's a lot of fun. And, you know, we play you know, we probably you know, during COVID we you know, when obviously all that music was was turned off, but we had something like forty or fifty gigs, you know, teed up when we you know, when we uh when we went out for COVID, so we play a uh, some lot. Some people
1: were doing remote Zoom gigs during during the lockdown. A- absolutely, and and uh,
2: but you know, I think you have to have a passion, mm-hmm. you know. And I think in my case, you know, music is my happy place, and I get you know, it. everybody needs to have a place they can go, and you know, my my happy place is you know Michael Jackson or whoever. You I, know? So.
1: I I totally get it. So so I only have you for a few more minutes. Let me jump to my speed round, my favorite questions, starting with what has been keeping you entertained what are you what are you watching um on Netflix or Amazon Prime so I watched a movie that really you know given
2: I you know I've, I've spoken about my background uh, and more recently I actually found my my birth family oh really? Which is you know kind of interesting and turns out that I grew up thinking I was an only child and it turns out I have nine siblings get out nine siblings. Uh, and by the way, they've been fantastic and incredibly excited and supportive. And most of them are still back in Buffalo, New York. Well, ha- um, how did
1: you find them? Because I've heard from people who do 23andMe, all of a sudden yeah. these local relatives pop up that yeah. they had
2: no idea about. Ancestry. So mm-hmm. I,
1: found, I found my
2: family in Ancestry. And, and I was watching a movie um, called Three Identical Strangers. Sure. And obviously a lot of those dynamics... You know, really hit home to me, you know, Mm -hmm. as I watched three brothers who've been separated at birth. You know, I I have you know, I have three brothers as well. Um, and you know, it was very interesting to see. And of course the big question in that movie is, is it nature? Right. Or is it nurture? And the conclusion initially they all thought that it was nature, as you recall. Oh well he does the same thing. Right. Actually, then you find out that it really was nurture, mm-hmm. and it really was how you were raised. Not, you know, you were born, you're, you're three brothers, and you do everything the same together, and you're identical. Remember, early on in that movie, they were all talking about, oh, this person does this, and we all do the same thing, and oh, we there's, have the same... There's br-. no
1: doubt there are all these crazy parallels, and then when you start to take peel off that first layer, suddenly... It's all about, it's all about how you were raised, mm-hmm. and it's all about... You know, were you raised in an environment
2: of love and happiness and positivity when you can do this, or were you raised in a very tough environment? And so, you know, that movie was, you know, incredibly moving to me because, uh, you know, I watched the, the thesis unfold, and so that's an example,
1: you know, of, of, um, of uh, one of the things that I watched So, lately. So let's talk about mentors. You've had a really fascinating career working with a lot of really sure. interesting people. Who helped shape your career? So,
2: I met David Rubenstein very, very early on. Actually, mm-hmm. um, even before my Drexel days, I was a lawyer uh, for for a few years, ah. and David was as well. I actually met him when he was a lawyer, and I was a lawyer guilty and, as well. Uh, it was kind of a funny story. I, I was um, a new associate at a law firm, and uh, I was directed to report to him and. As it turns out, he really didn't need anyone to help him. So I never really got a chance to work for him. But I met him then. We ended up uh, at, at the business that I mentioned, Indo Suez. We ended up being one of their largest limited partners and financed many, many deals for, for not just David, but uh, Glenn Youngkin, who was a, an associate back then, and Pete mm-hmm. Clair and others. And so I've known David for you know, over 25 years. Uh, obviously, we sold our firm to Carlisle. And, and I would say of all the folks that I know in our business – um, really, truly, just um, an incredible, um, you know, an incredible person, and frankly, brilliant in terms of how he built Carlisle into a global private equity firm. Our house, and of course, as you know, being here at Bloomberg, sure. um, you know how he has transitioned incredibly to be one of the most interesting media personalities and interviewers and. You know, we need to get him on your show. I mean
1: he's We were I think we were scheduled when his first book came out and then the pandemic lockdown happened and it got postponed. What what I find fascinating about him is the more people are running around with their hair on fire, the more he is just calm and the voice of reason. Yep. I love that sort of contrarianism that you know you you really when you could see clearly when chaos erupts. That's a really valuable skill, and he seems to have have that in, in spades. He really he, is full up with that. He, he is,
2: and, and uh, you know I've gotten obviously to you know continue to to know him well. and And I will say that you know you know the other thing that I would I would say about about his time is if you look at his leadership of Carlisle and really building that firm, mm-hmm. and you look across the folks that are both there now and are alumni, you can see what I refer to in terms of the people. I mean, if you look at the first twenty or so folks that that were at Carlisle, you know, many of them were still there at the firm, you know, you know, fifteen, twenty years later. And I think that speaks to that same dynamic I referred to, you know, building a real culture. And, you know, that's something I admire tremendously and I certainly feel that, you know, he's a good example of someone who's done that and transition so you know seamlessly into mm-hmm. being an author and author and an investor and ultimately a media personality so he's somebody I admire very much so so let's talk about some books what what are your favorites what are you reading right now so i listen to books you uh-huh. know i'm i've kind of you know i've kind of the point now we're a little bit lazy but you know you just you know you go on you go on Audible and you know you just you know you just stop sure. and then you keep going, so I'm listening to a book right now that I, I think is is absolutely fascinating. I would certainly recommend it. It's called The Splendid and the Vile. Uh, Eric Larson. Eric Larson, and it's all about England and Churchill in in advance of World War II mm. and really leading up through World War II. And what's fascinating about it is, I guess you know maybe never I never really fully realized how totally unprepared England was mm-hmm. for world war 2 let alone the United States and and how vulnerable they were you know in those early days and how easy it would have been for you know Germany which had basically conquered the entire continent i'm at the point now where you know they they've they've, they've you know they've conquered France i
1: won't spoil the ending for you but it's fantastic <laughs> and it's a great book everything he's ever written is f- Deep, fascinating, deeply researched. He's he's a fabulous writer. He is, and it's it's a super colorful book because it
2: really you really feel like you're um, in the shoes of Churchill as he's kind of navigating what is a you know you know potentially could have been the end of the free world. Sure, we know it right. So it's a great read. I won't spoil the you know the the <laughs> dynamics of it, but
1: it's uh, it's terrific. Let's get to our last two questions, starting with. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in a career in private credit, private equity, finance in general? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, in this age
2: of um, instant success, if you will, people become media personalities overnight. They become TikTok, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, stars, you know, in in a week. Um, I would say the advice I would give to to young people is that— Make sure that you understand going in that you know, it's all about the people you work with, the people you learn from. Surround yourself, and, and this is both personal and professional, surround yourself with people that love you, people that want you to be successful. If you surround yourself with people that have negativity and negative thoughts, you'll have negative thoughts, Mm -hmm. right? But if you surround yourself with people that you admire and respect and truly want you to be successful and that you can learn from and grow from, that's an incredibly important dynamic. And the other thing I would say, which is, I think, you know, and by the way, those friendships and relationships last a lifetime. Mm -hmm. I've got folks that I was in the bullpen with Mm -hmm. at Drexel back in, you know, back in the mid-80s that I'm still great friends with and, and still learn from and talk to all the time. So, you know, surrounding yourself with those people creates lifelong relationships and often come in very handy in the business world, as I'm sure you've seen in your career. Sure. The other thing I would say is I would remind them something that I think is, is a little bit hard, I think, for a young person to understand, thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, I went for my first interview and I got rejected. You will be rejected. You will fail the mark of the most successful people I know. And this includes athletes, Mm -hmm. like Tom Brady, who by the way, you know, was drafted in the fifth round and thought of his career, I'm sure thought of his career was, you know, quasi over at that point, uh, sitting on the bench in New England. But what you realize is it's all about having the tenacity and the willingness to pay the price to be really good at what you do. So, you will fail. Do not let failure stop you in any way, shape, or form recognize, you learn from failure, and it's the failures that ultimately inspire the successes. When I think about my career, it was absolutely the times when it didn't work out for whatever reason that, you know, you analyze, you, you, you determine, okay, what was it that made it not work out, and how do I fix that? And I think in many respects, where we are today as a firm is a great example of that, because we tacked several times along the way with our firm, and now we're in a phenomenal position with great partners and great people. So learning from and not
1: letting failure deter you is really important. And our final question, what do you know about the world of private credit and investing today you wish you knew 40 years or so ago when you were first getting started? You know, I I,
2: I think that, you know, when I was, you know, like all of us, when you're young in the business, you know, you're, you're convinced that it's all about showing everyone how smart you are and running the fastest models. I can remember the days at Drexel, we were all in the bullpen. They used to call it the model room, and everybody would go in there, and, you know, everybody would, you know, we would all compete for who had the most, you know, the technologically advanced financial models, and it was all right. about the numbers. And, and I think that, you know, there's certainly an element of our business that is, you know, is is about the numbers. But, you know. Thirty years ago, you know, I was a young kid thinking, okay, well, you know, it's all about the numbers and whoever's the fastest modeler wins, whoever's got the most, you know, whoever's the smartest wins. But what becomes very clear is it's all about the people, not the numbers. And it's all about building relationships and and working with people that ultimately make you better. And I think if, you know, you know, I, I certainly know that today, and I, you know, I certainly figured that out along the way, but I think understanding that Yes, the technical side of the business is important, but it's really ultimately the people side, the relationship side, the, the the ability to to surround yourself and to motivate and mentor the best people that create the best organizations. I mean, look at this organization here. I mean, you know, it's all about that, and I think that, um, you know, that's something I've learned along the way, and um,
1: I wish I had known that a lot earlier. Thanks, Ken, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Ken Kensell founder, president, and CEO of Churchill Asset Management. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out any of the previous 492 we've done over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg podcasts on Twitter At Podcast, I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Justin Milner is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Sean Russo is my researcher. Paris Wald is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.